0: We are currently in the book of Acts and what we've been seeing as we've been going through the story of Acts is that God's mission is an unstoppable movement. Last Sunday we saw that the apostles didn't give up on their calling and mission to proclaim the gospel because God didn't give up on them. And as we pick up the story of Acts today, we're going to see that the spread of Christianity continues to grow, continues to pick up momentum, and the Church of Christ continues to grow exponentially. Thousands and thousands of men and women become followers of Jesus. And as the Christian movement continues to pick up greater momentum, they face yet another obstacle. But because God's mission is unstoppable, obstacles become opportunities. And that's going to be the big idea of today's sermon. Obstacles become opportunities because the kingdom of God is an unstoppable movement. And today we're going to see that the apostles will face new obstacles. The obstacle of distraction and the obstacle of persecution. But we're going to see how God uses those obstacles become opportunities for the gospel to continue to spread and to multiply believers. And so this is where we're going today. We're going to see an obstacle of distraction become an opportunity to serve. Then we'll see Stephen's arrest become an opportunity to proclaim Christ. And we'll see how Stephen's death becomes a catalyst for the Gentile mission. So let's see how an obstacle of distraction becomes an opportunity to serve. From chapter 6, verse 1, we read, In those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebrew Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Here we see two distinct people groups. The Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews who have settled and assimilated in the Roman Empire. But the differences between these two groups was just not language. The Hellenistic Jews culturally thought and behaved like the Greeks. They were their own subculture, whereas the Hebrew-speaking Jews were very much immersed in their own Jewish culture. So we can assume that the Hellenistic Jews were the social minority in the early Christian movement. And the obstacle they faced was a complaint from the Hellenistic Jews that the widows were being overlooked from the daily distribution of food. Now, this complaint has a number of layers, which bring a number of different threats to the forward progress of the Christian movement. Firstly, the Hellenistic widows were being neglected from the daily distribution of food. The marginalized, the vulnerable, uh, the social minority group were being neglected. Now, the Hellenistic widows themselves were not the obstacle... The church should be a place where the vulnerable, those in need, are loved and cared for. The threat was the consequence of the church not caring for these widows. The consequence for the church for not doing that well, well, the church will become a poor witness to the world, and the church will lose credibility of the gospel. Secondly, the complaint threatened the internal unity of the church. This complaint had the potential to divide the early church into cultural factions. And thirdly, the greater threat was that this issue could have distracted the apostles if they did not solve this problem well, it would stop them from continuing to preach the gospel. Because if the apostles began to preoccupy themselves with the administration of the structures of social care, which are essential, but they wouldn't have collected their particular calling. They would have neglected their God-given calling and responsibility for prayer and the ministry of the word. The potential was to turn this missional movement of the gospel and turn in on themselves. But in God's unstoppable mission, obstacles become opportunities. And in this case, the obstacle became an opportunity for the leaders to lead and the church to engage. For leaders to lead and the church to engage. So let's see how this obstacle became an opportunity for leaders to lead and the church to engage. Let's look at verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. And we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This obstacle became an opportunity for the leaders to lead and the church to engage. And so, how did the leaders lead? We see that the leaders make decisions. The apostles gathered the whole church together and they didn't shy away from the complaint, they didn't shy away from the confrontation, and they didn't sweep things under the rug. No leaders. Make decisions. And the apostles made a decision and they proposed a solution to the church. I really like how Albert Moeller writes about decision making in his book, The Conviction to Lead. He says, Organizations thrive when leaders make the right decisions and they fail when leaders make the wrong decisions. What is often less obvious is the fact that organizations can suffer worse when leaders refuse to make any decisions at all. Failure to make decisions paralyzes the organization. Does that ring true to perhaps your experience? The apostles didn't ignore the situation. They led. They made decisions. And not only that, we also see that leaders must delegate. When a leader does more than their fair share of work or what is more than what is primarily required of them, that should not be seen as virtuous leadership. In fact, it's actually retreating from leadership. And in the case of the apostles, it's not as though serving on tables were beneath them. It was a case that they knew what they were called to do. They were able to prioritize the things in front of them and delegate responsibilities to good people of good character and competence, And from my own personal learning and experiences, I think there are two main reasons or ways that leaders fail to delegate well. The first reason is that a leader can be over-controlling. Leaders can fail to delegate well when they micromanage or they keep things to themselves because they like the control or they don't like others stuffing up. But the second reason why leaders fail to delegate well is that they can be overly compassionate. That might sound a bit strange to you, so let me explain. Leaders can take on too much out of compassion to not want to burden others, particularly when others are feeling weak. And I want to share with you honestly that this is something that I have been convicted of and that's something that I have confessed to our elders recently. And I'm confessing to you, uh, my church family, to share with you what God has been teaching me. Over the last five years since the planting of Chapel Hill, in the background outside of our church, there has been a number of prominent pastors who have disqualified themselves or exited ministry because of overbearing or bullying type of behavior. And as someone who's just entered the ministry, who's church planting for the first time, it was telling me subconsciously, I was telling myself subconsciously that, I don't want to be that kind of pastor. I want to be a pastor that's full of grace, that doesn't burn out our congregation. But unfortunately, over time, that had skewed my leadership to be compassionately over-accommodating to the needs of the people in our church, and has made me less inclined to courageously call people to live in obedience and faith, to serve God even in their weaknesses, because the Bible promises us that we are made strong when we are most weak, when it comes to serving and obeying God. And as a result, this kind of leadership behaviour made me begin to overfunction, which is, I think, a helpful psychological term, which means to take on other people's responsibilities, take on other roles and tasks out of a desire to be gracious and compassionate. And there are seasons where that it's it, that's a right thing to do. To overfunction, to love and serve the weak, the suffering, the hurting. And the Bible encourages us to carry each other's burdens. But if this becomes a regular pattern of behavior, then the overfunctioning leader or person will eventually burn out, and the underfunctioning person will they'll be deprived of the opportunity to grow, the opportunity to develop resilience, perseverance, to build up faith to shore up their convictions, that God can work powerfully even through our weaknesses. And so that's what I've learned: that effective leadership requires both compassion and courage. The compassion to be empathetic, to show mercy, to correctly assess a person's limit, but also to have the courage to call and challenge people to not retreat, but to appropriately Press into faith to grow in perseverance. Build that spiritual faith muscle and experience the joy of being made strong by God in our weaknesses. I've learned that this is the leadership dance, the dance of balancing compassion and courage. And I strongly believe that this dynamic, the dynamic and dance of compassion and courage, is the dynamic that will powerfully grow our church into greater spiritual maturity. I know that not everyone is in a position of leadership in the church, but I think most of you are exercising leadership in some form of way, perhaps in your workplace or within your family. In your arenas of your leadership, I want to ask you, are you over-functioning for others? Is it because you're prone to be overly controlling or perhaps you're prone to be overly compassionate. If you're overly controlling, then you need to have the courage and faith to let things be a little bit messy and to know that God is sovereignly in control over all things. If you're overly compassionate, you need to have the courage and faith, the, the faith to encourage, which is, the word means actually to inspire courage, to inspire courage of, of others to lean into God to grow and mature in faith as God sovereignly uses our weaknesses and trials to refine us and to grow us so that they won't have a deep codependency on you, but they would have a healthy dependency on God. Now, I'm going to courageously and compassionately press in a little bit further on our married couples. For our couples, I want to ask you, who in your marriage is either over-functioning or under-functioning? Who in your marriage is either over-functioning or under-functioning in the particular practical and spiritual roles and responsibilities in your family? Are you actually using your spouse's compassion as a way to neglect your fair share in leading the family, to be comfortable and not do that hard work to grow and mature and to build faith? How can you both together lead a healthy culture of compassion and courage so that you won't be codependent on each other, but you would have a healthy dependency on God? And so we see leaders lead, but we also see the church engage. We see the members of the church step up to make sure that the widows are not going to be neglected. Read from verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, after reading those verses, you might be thinking, oh, those are quite interesting interesting names. I think uh, Mikey did a good job pronouncing them. Well, a very encouraging thing in my study of this passage this week was to find out that the seven names listed were Greek names. And so what's happened is that the Hellenistic Jews who brought the complaint to the apostles are also the Hellenistic Jews who stepped up to take care for the needy. I think that's just such a beautiful picture. They took the opportunity to engage in service. That is such a beautiful and encouraging thing to see. And so this story is not painting a picture of the church AGM where the leaders present the plans and all the members, yep, they nod their heads of approval and say to the leaders, we like your plan, so in six months' time, give us an update. We want to see and expect results. No, that's not what we see. What we see is that the church was pleased with the apostles' plans and the solution, and they supported it. They backed it by engaging, by being part of the solution, to be openly bringing constructive complaints to the leaders, but also being the first to being part of the solution, rather than be passive spectators. So in a church, when leaders lead and the church engages, what will be the results? We'll read that the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Chapel Hill, may we take on board this leadership lesson to see the gospel spread across our city and see many, many more people become obedient to faith through our church. So now the story hones in on Stephen. Stephen. And we read that he's a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit in verse 7. And in verse 8, we read that Stephen's a man full of God's grace and power. Stephen's a man of godly character. He's a man who surrenders himself to the influence of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit empowers him to do great wonders and signs among the people. And he spoke amazing wisdom that the Spirit gave him. The Jewish leaders began to rise in opposition against Stephen. And they accused Stephen against two sacred aspects of Jewish life, the temple and the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses to say in verse 13, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, change the customs Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw his face was like the face of an angel. Now, when it says that his face was like the face of an angel, it actually doesn't mean that Stephen looked innocent and tender, like a Cupid-like angel, like a baby with wings. Because every time someone meets an angel in the Bible, their response is is not, oh, how cute, uh, how innocent. Their response is always great fear. If you remember Matthew 28 on Easter Sunday, when an angel came down to Jesus' tomb, the guards were pretty much scared to death. And so when Luke describes Stephen having a face like an angel. He's describing the angel-like authority and power to challenge and the power and authority of Sanhedrin to be fearlessly as God's messenger. And so God uses Stephen to face the obstacle of false accusi- accusations, false witnesses, to create an opportunity to teach and correct the Jewish leaders in their home court. And Stephen, empowered by the Spirit, becomes an angelic messenger of God. Towards this angry mob that wants to kill him, he courageously launches the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. And unfortunately, I don't have the time to walk through all the details of the sermon. There's just so much packed in. So I encourage you this week to read through chapter 7 for yourself this week. But as a summary, there are a few things that are worth our attention. In his defense of the accusations that he is against the temple and the law, Stephen provides a selective recital of Old Testament history. You see from verses 2 to 8 of chapter 7, you'll see Stephen highlighting Abraham. Verses 9 to 19, he talks about Joseph and the Egyptian exile in verses twenty to forty-four, he talks about Moses, the Exodus, Israel's wandering in the wilderness, and finally, from verses forty-five to fifty, he turns to David, David King David, the establishment of the Jewish kingdom. What is the single thread that is running through Israel's history? It's that God's presence was never limited or confined to just being in one place. He nails it in verse 47. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What's the point? Well, God is an active, living God and he will not be boxed in. The fact that God was never confined to a physical temple demonstrate that the story of the temple was incomplete under the old covenant, under the old promise. True believers would recognize that there would one day be a day when God and his people will be together in a new way, a new covenant, a new promise that is greater than the old covenant. The new covenant is that God now dwells in his people by the Holy Spirit. And in Stephen's defense, he teaches and corrects the religious leaders that Jesus and his giving on the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of the temple. And Stephen not only defends his view of the temple, he also courageously challenges their regard for Moses and the law. Stephen recognizes that the significance and the value of the law in salvation history. But Stephen turns the table on the religious leaders and shows how they have shown disrespect for Moses and the law. That the disrespect of Moses and the law didn't start with him, but it was Israel that was always disrespectful and disobedient to the law. So in verse 25, he shows that it was Israel who did not recognize Moses as their deliverer. In verse 35, it was Israel who rejected Moses' leadership and turned their hearts back to Egypt. Then towards the end of the sermon, he shows this same pattern of behavior is repeated towards Amos and all of God's prophets. And so by retelling Israel's disobedient history, Stephen is showing to the angry religious leaders that he was not denying the law. Instead, he was upholding the true purpose of the law. The law intended to demonstrate to people's inability to live a life in obedience to God's law. And so the point of the law was to point people to the Saviour, to the Messiah. And men like Joseph and Moses were foreshadowing of a coming of a Saviour, who is Jesus, who unfortunately Israel also rejected. So how does this Jew respond? How do they respond to the preaching of Jesus, who gives the Spirit for God's presence to dwell in His people, Jesus, who gives up his life to forgive our disobedience to God's law, and he gives us his righteousness to be made white as snow. How does the Jew respond? Well, let's look at verse 45. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I find that image of gnashing of teeth very vivid and striking. Striking because we find in the gospel, Jesus saying that those who are outside of the kingdom, those who are cast out into eternal judgment, they will gnash their teeth. Hell is an internal destination. But here we also learn that hell is also a state of the heart, which can consume a person now. And Luke tells us this hatred intensified into full-on rage and violence. Verse 47, 57 And this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. In this Christianity, we find Christianity's first martyr. But what is truly amazing is Stephen's last words before he died. Verse 49, 59 While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. It's a remarkable end. The courage and trust he has in God, but also the compassion he has for his oppressors. Mimicking Jesus' courage and compassion on the cross to also die for the truth, but at the same time have the compassion to forgive his oppressors. And the way that Luke describes his death as nothing more than sleep. Much more can be said about Stephen's death, but significantly Luke, the author of Acts, is eager to emphasize the vital role it played in God's plans and purposes. Stephen's death rocked the church and persecution was ignited from his death. But looking back, Luke can recognize how Stephen's death was a catalyst for the Gentile mission. In fact, we read in the very next verse, On that day, the day of uh, Stephen's death, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Did you know what the church did in Judea and Samaria? Did they run and hide? No, spoiler alert, they continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they continue to witness many more thousands and thousands of people come to salvation in Jesus. Now, I suspect that, that no one would have anticipated that it was the death of Stephen that would embolden the church to serve as a catalyst to spread the mission into Judea and Samaria, but that was what it had happened. Here it is. And so I'll end by sharing with you what I find most remarkable about this whole scene. In verse 56, something incredible takes place. As the religious leaders hold up their stones, Stephen holds up his face, holds up his head towards heaven. And what does he see? What is the final image before he breathes his last breath? Luke says in verse 56, Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, there is a very peculiar detail that is a bit odd, which we can easily miss. You may know that it is expected that when someone important enters the room, what do we do? We stand. That's why in the army, soldiers stand when a general enters a room. That is why in a court of law, when the judge enters, he says, They will all rise. It's a sign of honor when we stand before someone important. And here's the interesting peculiar detail throughout the Bible, whenever we get a glimpse into heaven, When we ever get a chance to have a vision of Jesus on the heavenly throne room, we always see Jesus seated on the throne, seated at the right hand of God. And it's a beautiful image of Jesus sitting on the throne. It signifies his kingship. It marks his authority. It tells us that his salvation work on the cross is complete he's seated in glory. But here, this is not what Stephen sees. What does Stephen see? He sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, standing to give honour to Stephen. Standing as if to say, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, Isn't that stunning that the Lord of Law, lords, the King of all kings, would stand to give Stephen great honour? And isn't that all that we should be living for in a time when so many of us are desperate to secure the praise of man, desperate for the approval of man, desperate to have a standing ovation from man, Friends, this is the question that this passage raises for you and I today. Whose honor are you living for? Whose praise are you living for? Chapel Hill, let's live for the praise of the most praiseworthy. Let's seek honor for the most honorable, King Jesus. Friends, how can the obstacles that you are currently facing How might they be opportunities to find honor in Jesus? You may not be liked, but you will be honored by the King of Kings. You will be honored by the Lord of Lords who stands at the right hand of God. Friends, let's live for Jesus. Let's speak for Jesus and when it's time for you and I to depart this life, may it be said to us from the King of all kings, from the Lord of all lords, Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant, from our Lord Jesus. Friends, may we see him. May we see his glory and be bold, be courageous, be fearless to live for Jesus in all time and in all ways. Let's pray together and commit ourselves afresh to God. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the glories of your Son, Jesus. Father, we pray may we see him as our Lord of lords, as our King of all kings. May we live to gain honor from him, not from the honor of a man. May we learn to lead our families, lead ourselves, lead our church, to see the gospel spread across our city, to see many more people become followers of you May we live for you, Jesus, by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.